you look at your handout sheet, you will notice that we are in part 10 of our Matthew series, and we entitled today's message, The Hard Road, when Jesus lays out the path for his disciples. And I want to begin with a quote by William Culbertson, who said this. He said, I find that discipleship means first, truly living. It does not mean a joyride to heaven. Now, that's haven, because I can't do that. It didn't get caught by spell check, so I ruined that. It does not mean a joyride to heaven. It does not mean there are no trials and no burdens, but it does mean peace in your soul and joy in your heart and a sense, a supreme sense of the smile of the Lord upon you. It is living and discipleship means that you are using your time on earth to the best possible advantage. The Lord Jesus says so. Today's message is all about discipleship, the cost of walking with Christ. But we got to get a couple things straight in order to understand this. And right off the bat, let me say something about the text that we're about to read. If you remember from my introduction, Matthew, unlike some of the other gospel writers, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew's a little different in the sense that he is not Mr. Chronology. He does not put things in order when they happen. He's topical guy. He's compiler guy. He grabs a lot of the teachings of Jesus on one given subject. Boom, drops them all in. The text we're about to read is going to appear to say, hey, you interested in following me? Great. You're all going to die. Thank you. That is probably not likely the conversation that occurred. As a matter of fact, according to Mark and Luke, This stuff not only happened in three separate incidents at least, but it happened over a period of years. However, Matthew grabbed all that material, shoved it all together, and taught it in one large dose. So we need to understand this by looking a little bit more accurately at the text. But the main issue that is going to be brought up today is what does God expect of me? And I think it's a very, very fair question. Is Jesus saying, come follow me? You're going to die. Is that really what he's telling you right here, right now? Is that what we should all be taking away from today? Uh, no, I don't believe that that is the case. Now, let me use an analogy from the military. And those of you that are from the military may find that this is horribly wrong, but try to track with me. In the military, not everybody runs on the front lines. Not everybody is in harm's way. As a matter of fact, during, even during wartime, everybody's stationed all over the place. If you are in a problem and you're radioing back asking for help, there better be someone that's not in trouble on the other side of the radio trying to get you that help. So whether you're on the homeland or whether or not you're out in the field, everybody's working together. Everybody's in. Everybody's committed. But that doesn't mean that everybody dies. That is very similar to what I want to use for today when talking about discipleship. When we engage with this passage, the majority of what Jesus is talking about is he's giving a very specific message to a very specific group of people, the apostles, 12 guys that are the spearhead of this brand new organism known as the Christian church. They will be on the front lines. They will be attacked like never before. They will be breaking new ground. And yes, tradition shows that all but one died a horrible martyr's death. John got away with dying a regular death. Everybody else, horrible means. Ripped apart, crucified upside down, this kind of stuff. So was Jesus messing around? No, he was telling them exactly what they had before them. 
Is he telling that to everybody? Well, the second time this uh, account is given, he gives it out to the 72, if you remember that. Uh, A group of 72 disciples that he has. They're not apostles. But he gives them some teaching on what to expect. Were they all going to die a martyr's death? No. And even so, when Jesus gave this message to his apostles, he was giving it to them at the beginning of a three-year-long discipleship period. He was with them every day for three years to get them locked and loaded. Then he launched them out on their own, and they lived for years doing ministry before they were ever challenged to die. So I don't want you walking away and assuming that my message for you is today you're all going to die on the way home for your faith. That's not what I'm trying to say. But history has shown that not only in the original day of the apostles, but in succeeding generations, we've had martyrs. Yeah, is that pretty obvious? Um, You either can look at Fox's Book of Martyrs or look at some history stuff through the voices of the martyrs, whatever you want to do. You will find that many, many people throughout history have died for Jesus Christ. Do people still die today? Okay, not a lot in America, right? And that's what's kind of thrown us off. When we read this text, we're reading from a safe environment. We're reading where this sounds like a million miles away or certainly of a different age. It is not. Today, in many parts of this world, the first day you get saved, you get baptized. The first day you get baptized, your society sees that, marks you out, and you are dead that night. So yes, for many people, the first day they walk with Jesus is their last day on earth. Will some of us be called into a mission field like that? Perhaps. Will some of us be called to places like Sierra Leone, which are brutal? Perhaps. Will all of us? No, the majority will not. In America, not many people die for Jesus. In Colorado, a few years ago, a young lady didn't realize that was her day to go, right? For Jesus. So it happens, but it's not very likely. So we read this from a place of safety, a place of peace, and it feels very distant. Because no one's knocking on your door, dragging you out in the streets. But isn't it not still true? Is this not a book for all ages and for all areas of life? Is it not for all geographies? Is it not for all centuries? It is. As a matter of fact, there are some areas of the world and sometimes in history when they would have saw this as light reading. Oh, really? You only died yourself? That's interesting because I saw my whole family burned alive. Really? That's all you got? So the question that must echo around our minds and the echo around the minds of every Christian in all of history, including today, is this. Would I be willing to die? Don't know if you're ever going to be asked that. But would you? You guys, I got to run these scenarios in my head all the time, not only because I'm a paranoid freak, but because it's practical. Think about all the scenarios I run. For example, how about the scenario of going to jail? What do I do for a living? I'm a pastor. How often am I heard being uh, speaking? Right. I'm on the radio all the time. So lots of people hear me. What if society begins to adjust and they don't like what I have to say? Will there come a day when I may be jailed for my beliefs? Perhaps. I got to run that scenario. All right. And right now I feel pretty strong that I will go to jail and do that for Jesus. But would I die? Well, some days, yes. And some days, no. Some days I feel all strong and confident. And some days I feel like a little weenie. So I don't know. I'm going to pray that God gives me some courage in that day. Right. 
And I think that's what we're going to be talking about today. But the bottom line is the fill in the blank in front of you, which is simply this. Commitment and discipleship go hand in hand. Commitment and discipleship go hand in hand. Whether you're on the front lines or not, everyone's committed. Yes? Amen. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35? Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, page 687 in the Bible's handed to you. 687. And that would be Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. I'm just going to read a few verses here and we'll pray for the word and then I'll teach you what I see. It begins like this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes to see what you desire from us, what you require of us? And Lord, would you empower us to uh, carry that out without hesitation? Father, in many ways, we are way too tied to garbage. Sometimes we're way too tied to good things, but not the best things. And Father, someone has said that delayed obedience is disobedience, and that shakes me to my core. May we be the type of people that do your will and do it instantly. Open up your word to us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how I see it. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in the synagogue. Stop. Let's do a real quick analogy. Let's say I am teaching you how to preach. And I said, all right, your first gig is I want you to go down on Sierra College Boulevard. Sierra College turns into Hazel. Right next to East Valley Church, there's a synagogue. And I want you to go preach the gospel in the synagogue. How's that going to go for you? Probably not real hot. Yeah. Okay. Why? Because Orthodox Judaism is still waiting for the coming of the Messiah the first time. They haven't bought into the idea that it's Jesus. And so the idea of preaching Jesus Christ is an offense. And so we don't have a lot of mixture of Christian and Jew teaching together or engaging together. We have Messianic Jewish congregations, but that's different. We don't have a lot of Orthodox engaging with a lot of modern mainstream Christianity. But back then, there was no such thing as this new Christian groove. It, Christian comes from Christ, and Christ just got on the map. So he's launching this whole thing. This is the inauguration. And as a matter of fact, he's a Jew, and he came to minister to what? The Jews. We make so many errors in our minds about this whole baloney about, oh, the church replaced Israel. No, it did not. God still loves the Jewish people. He still has the plan for the Jewish people. And he has them right in the center of his radar. He's still working with them. Now, we got grafted in. We got to be a part of the family. Praise God for that. And that's why I have this little marketing thing on my Bible. Everyone always said, oh, this is an ancient symbol. No, it's really not. It's how people make money. Anyway, so I got a little sticker, and it has a little menorah, and it's tied to the little Star of David, and then a little Christian fish right there hanging out at the bottom. All right, why? Because we got adopted into their family. But it's Jew first, then Gentile. You're going to see that over and over in the message today. But Jesus, like Martin Luther, did not come in to start something brand new. He came in to reform and breathe life into what already existed. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. 
He came into the Jews and said, I'm here. Will you accept me? We find out from history that they said no. And that opened the door for the Gentiles to come in as well. Now, it wasn't just this whole idea of running around in the synagogues. He had a message. He had backup. He had proof of him being the Messiah. So the rest of it says he went through all these areas preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. We talked a lot about that last week. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I cannot overemphasize the amount of crowds that thronged around Jesus. How many? Thousands. Constantly bombarding, not being able to get a break, can't catch any breath, constantly moving through, worming your way through, everybody reaching out, wanting to get a piece of you. Some say as in the gospel accounts that people strain just to try to touch him because then they would be healed of their sickness. If they knew that you were like a magic little thing that you could rub and get your answer done, how many people are going to clamor for you? And can you get anything done? Well, that was Jesus's life. But when he saw these people, he did not see hassle. He did not see interruption. He did not see irritation. He saw people he loved. So it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That word in Greek is splotna, which is the strongest word for compassion and pity in the Greek language. It means from the bowels. Now, doesn't sound all that hot. Makes for terrible poetry when you're writing. Right? Because in that era, the seat of the emotions was not in the heart, like we say it. Right? Oh, my heart yearns for you. Back then, it was my bowels yearn for you, which sounds just horrible. Right? You don't want to write that note. Okay. But it makes more sense. It's actually far more, in my opinion, far more accurate of a portrayal. Why? Because the bowels, it is the idea of the deepest part of you is moved. It's not the whole, oh, I got this little aortic valve up. I think it's right by my lung. And oh my gosh, it's up higher in my chest. It's right next to my esophagus. There's none of that. It's way down deep inside you. From the depth of your being up rises your emotions. And that is the place that Jesus had compassion. He was moved to care for these people. How do you see people? You see them as an irritant? Are they still your problem? People aren't... Your problem, world, flesh, devil, those are your problems. People aren't your problem. We keep battling the wrong thing. They are our mission field. They are who we love. They're not our problem. Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. It didn't say they thought they were. It says they were. Harassed and helpless, that word harassed in Greek means bewildered and helpless means laid out flat on the ground. What's the picture? These words are used to describe the following scenarios. A mangled corpse, a person robbed and plundered and left for dead, someone wearied from a trip with no end. That's what he was talking about. He said people are really screwed up and hurting. That's a big deal. Are you still so foolish as to believe that all your neighbors have it all together? Oh, it's only you. Your family's the only one screwed up, really? Really? Okay. And you're the only one that has any problems. You're the only one that's wrestling with uh, temptations. You're the only one that has these addictions. And you're the only one having a hard time. Are you kidding me? Everybody's screwed up. 
Everybody's messed up. And everybody in the depth of their being needs a savior. Everybody. Now, once they engage with Jesus Christ, they may find that they do not want to submit or surrender to a king. I understand that. But everybody is dying on the inside. That's how he viewed it. And he said, you know what? Do you see what the enemy is doing to these people? Do you see what the world system is doing to these people? Do you see what we're doing to ourselves? Do you see that we're eating each other alive? And he was moved to do something. For they were like sheep without a shepherd. You guys ever seen sheep's defense systems? Right? Bah, that's it. That's all I got. Well, that was awesome. They got the little hooves. They're like, you know, I'll get after you. Okay, they got nothing, right? I'll hit you with my wool. It, there's, I mean, even if they land on you, it's soft, right? I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing's just awkward, right? They really got nothing. But the whole thing is they're just, they're totally lost. It's kind of like, somebody give me direction here. I don't even know what I'm doing. I keep eating the same ground. There's no more grass. And honestly, they'll eat it all the way down to the ground and starve to death if you don't move them on. Sheep are stupid. <laughs> Which is why my motto in life is people are stupid. Praise the Lord. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the encouragement factor. <laughs> this is excellent. Here's the thing. They're like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, did Jesus design into creation leaders to run the Jewish people and to lead them in the right ways? Yes. Did he provide prophets? Yes. Did he provide priests? Yes. But they weren't doing their job. They're making it worse. And how frustrating is that for Christ to walk in on the scene and go, this is what we got? What, there's no defense for them? There's no help for them? You keep piling on garbage on their shoulders. What are you doing? No wonder he was so frustrated and so angry. So he talks to his own team and he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Boy, isn't that upside down from what you really believe in your heart, right? You and I are pretty mixed up in America. Here's what we believe. No one wants to hear about Jesus. You only get a chance to share your faith, what, once every six months, maybe? And that's if you're totally alert, right? You never feel like you want to share your faith. No one wants to hear about Jesus. Come on. You're going to go up. You wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. You don't want to go to your neighbor and say, oh, I don't want you. You know, if I share Jesus with you, then you've got to be all heavy about the guilt of your sin. And life's already hard enough. And I don't know. I don't really want to kind of break your stride or cause you any difficulty. So I'm just going to kind of hang on to this Jesus thing. Maybe you could kind of sort it out on your own. Really? Because they don't have any problems, right? Do you understand that without Jesus, they have all the same problems. They just have no hope. Hmm. And no one wants to hear about Jesus or you mean everybody needs to hear about. Jesus? No, you're right. They don't want to hear us because we're kind of irritating. No, you're right. They probably don't like your method of evangelism. You're right. And no, they probably don't want to hear us with our little pat stupid answers. You're right. But they need to hear about Jesus because they need to live too, right? Now, this next passage is where Jesus calls the apostles um, in order to kind of give you some flavor. I'm going to combine uh, Mark and Luke along with Matthew and kind of give you a combo account here. I'm just going to do it on this story alone, so I'm not going to be doing it to you all day long like I did last couple weeks. But this is how it sounds. 
Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God, meaning his father, prepping up for this big task. When morning came, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. He called his disciples to him and they came to him. How many disciples do you think Jesus had? If you said 12, you're wrong. How many disciples did he have? Probably thousands. Because a disciple means a learner. So how many learners did he have? He had a lot. We already know that. But out of this massive crowd, now imagine this crowd just multiplied out, right? There's a, where there's thousands of us here. Jesus would sit down and as he's teaching all these different learners, he would then select out and he would go, you, 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 you. And he picked out 12. He said, come up here. Take a look at this. He called his disciples to him. They came to him and he chose and appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. The word apostle means an envoy or an ambassador sent out on behalf of. That's different than a disciple. And he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. All right. This is what we got. These are the guys. Now, maybe you've heard of them. Verse Two, these are the names of the 12 apostles he appointed. First, Simon, to whom he gave the name and who is called Peter and his brother, Andrew. So we got one brother team Then we got another brother team, James, son of Zebedee and his brother, John. To them, he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. By the way, they're most scholars believe they were mentioned in twos because that's how they were sent out. That was their partner for the trip. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, otherwise known as Judas, son of James. Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor and betrayed him. You guys heard of these? If you've been in the church for a while, these are pretty common names, right? You know mostly the inner three, Peter, James, and John. You know those guys. What do you know about Bartholomew? Nothing. Who cares? Right? Philip? Eh. Don't got anything on him either. These guys are all ordinary folk. The only thing I want to kind of point out to you is what a weird bag of guys. Let me highlight one of just one of the issues that they had. What's a zealot? Anybody know what a zealot is? According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, there were four key groups in the Jewish world. There were the Pharisees, which we're familiar with, the Sadducees, which we've read a lot about. Then there were the Essenes. Now, the Essenes, you may not be familiar with. They were the little monk Jews, the guys that were the monastic order. We'll talk about them at a later time when we talk about the uh, last meal, the last supper. And then there were the zealots. Who were the zealots? The zealots were the hardcore nationalists. They were the radical reformation Kick Rome out. We can't beat them by sheer numbers. Let's subvert them. These are the guys that carried around daggers in their cloaks and killed people. These are brutal guys. These are guys that will knife you and drift back into the crowd. These are guys that, that it is hardcore pro-Israel at all costs. That's a zealot. We got one on the team. Guess who they hate the most? Traitors like tax collectors. Oops, that's Matthew. One commentary said, do you realize that any other time other than underneath the leadership of Jesus, one would have knifed the other? Now they're on a team. Weird. 
Then you got, look at the other guys. All of a sudden you got Peter, Mr. Consistent, right? Who's like all over the map. I'll totally die for you. I have no idea who Jesus is. I don't know what you're talking about. All right? Just all over. Bam, bam. Always saying stupid stuff, sticking his foot in his mouth. Then you got Thomas going, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You're not risen from the dead until I see your hands and feet. And I put my... Do you understand? This is his team. What a weird group of guys. Boy, they all can't stand each other. They don't know what's going on. Now they got to live together for three years. Why do you think church is so messed up? You guys understand? We're all thrown together on purpose. We're not supposed to be at the same age. We're not supposed to be at the same socioeconomic level. We're not supposed to be similar. We're supposed to be different and crazy and shoved all together because underneath Jesus and only underneath Jesus do you see unity in that. Ah, we're on common ground here, people. You here for Jesus? Me too. Great. We got something in common. That's it. Now, these 12, it says in verse 5, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. That word in Greek is a kind of a fancy word. It talks about giving instructions in a military sense and in an envoy sense and to your friends. It's kind of a complicated word. And his first instruction is this. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any of the towns of the Samaritans. That's us. We just got rejected right off the bat. Now, we have a few Jews in here, but most of us are Gentiles, which is non-Jews, right? So he immediately said, skip those folks. Go around Bridgeway. Right? That's really what he just said. Is that offensive? Well, it's something you've got to own, something you've got to believe. Why? Because he said, go first, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. Jews first. Quick question. Who are the Samaritans? Right? The little area, Samaria, right there in the middle of Israel, that the Jews hated. They avoided it. They would walk all the way around, make their trip a lot longer, just so they didn't even walk in their dirt. Who are the Samaritans? They're half-breeds. Lance, that's so non-PC. Whatever. It's legit. They're half-Jews, half-not-Jews. That makes them swirl. Right? Well, the Jews didn't like them. They didn't like them because they weren't pure Jew. They had their own gig going on. They didn't like how the Jews did it. The Jews didn't like how they did it. Did Jesus minister to the Samaritans? Yeah, where was the woman from the well at? Samaria. Did Jesus minister to Gentiles? Sure did. This is not a lockdown forever. This was the initial launch, Jew first. Then we'll hit those guys. But it always is Jews first. And that's got to be okay with you. Where did the Samaritans come from? In 722 B.C., when the Assyrian Empire swept in and devastated the north, they took them out in captivity. Well, when they're out there, they ended up getting married, and then they came back home. Well, now they're mixed. Does that make sense? And that's kind of where it all started. All right. Avoid those guys. As you go, preach this message. That word means herald for the king. In other words, don't preach your own opinion. Preach this message. What is my job as a preacher? To try not to preach opinion, but to try to preach the word of God. Now, in order to do that, I add in a lot of flavor of opinion. That's why you've got to take that stuff with a grain of salt. If I make a comment on something, I may be completely right. I may be completely bogus. I am here to teach the word of God and teach the word of God alone. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's a place where God's will is done perfectly. Who is that embodied in? Jesus Christ. Is he not on the earth? All right, then. So the message is the kingdom of God is here. 
engage with it. That's what it means. But don't just talk. I'm going to give you superpowers. That's what he said. Verse eight, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those that have leprosy and drive out demons. How cool would that be? Now, that's pretty awesome, right? And they're like, what did you just say? I said, I'm now going to empower you to do everything that I did. What do you mean? I mean, to do everything I did. Were you guys not with me? Didn't I just raise that little 12-year-old girl from the dead? Did you see that? That's pretty awesome, huh? Okay, go do it. What? Like, what, now? What do you mean? No way. Uh, do I like get like an amulet or like something really cool? Do I get a wand? No. Go out and do it. The whole point is it's God coursing through you. Do the miraculous. All right. Yeah, we can do this. Woo! Okay, and then they get excited. Now, it's funny because when they come back, the Bible says, they're like little girls screaming. They're like, yeah, check it out. It was awesome. I was there. And there was like this demon. And I was like, get out, you demon. And I was like, woo! Okay. Whole time, Jesus is like, I know. I know. It's pretty cool, huh? So they got to do that. So he said, freely you have received, freely give. What's that mean? It means, I'm sorry, did you try to make this into your kingdom and make cash off it? Is that what you just did? No, I don't think so. How much did I charge you to give you these superpowers? Nothing. See, there's a temptation when you have that sort of power to go, yeah, I could raise your daughter for a little cash, right? Oh, no, that's not what we're doing. That's horrifying to think of. But people try to do that. He said, no, that's not what we do. Freely I gave it to you, freely give it out. This is about advancing the kingdom of God. Then he said, don't take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. In other words, don't load up cash because when you have everything you need, you stop working. So no, and actually they didn't have money belts, they had girdles. So actually the word is, don't fill up cash in your girdles, guys. Which just sounds just odd, right? So they had these little inner pockets where they would keep cash. He said, don't do it. Take no bag for the journey, no extra tunic, no extra sandals, no extra staff, Mark clarifies for us. For the worker is worth his wages. In other words, get out there, go lean, and earn it. Be about the task. Be a good workman. Get out there and show them why they're supporting you. Do it well. All right. I'm sending you out. Oh, whoa. Whatever town or village you enter, he says in verse 11, and this gets pretty tough. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. What's a worthy person? Someone that's about the ministry, right? So you walk into a town. Hey, how you doing? I'm here on behalf of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Wanted to know if I could share with you a little bit about what's going on in the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, the who? The Messiah. No, I'm not into that. Okay, thank you. Walk over here. Hi, how you doing? I'm brand new in the area, and I just want to know if you wanted to hear something about the Messiah. Oh, really? The Messiah's come? Yeah, I would love to hear that stuff. All right, well, can I stay at your place? Yeah, absolutely. Come on in. It's called hospitality. It's how it worked in the Middle East. They accept you into their house. If someone worthy is found, stay at their house and don't move around, he just said. And you go, what do you mean? Well, you can imagine you're sitting at one person's house, and you learn that across town there's someone that wants to hear about the Messiah with cable. So now you want to move over there, right? It's kind of like, well, I could stay here and like have nothing or they have great food over there and I could go move around and I could hop around and everybody can constantly give me stuff. No. Walk in, lock in, stay, get your job done. Then you move. Hmm. Interesting. 
He said this. Now, this is interesting. Verse 12. As you enter the home, give it your greeting, which always sounded funny. It's like, hello, house. <laughs> if the <laughs> last service, I did the house voice back, which was weird. Okay. If the, <laughs> if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. All right. Here, this sounds really odd to our ears. Modern day Western. Old school East. Here's how it was viewed. When you spoke something, it became alive, active, and began to do stuff independently on its own. For example, blessings were a big deal. A blessing would be something like this. As you guys leave church, I stand up here, and as a pastor, I bless you. And I say things like, may God's hand rest upon you, and may he bless you and anoint you to do the task of sharing your faith today. That as you engage with people Coming in and going out of your life today, may you have the power to have the words to say and that you would proclaim the gospel boldly. Go in peace. Right? Let's say I say something like that. The way it worked in the East, my words go, they fire out, they lock into you, and they begin to work on your behalf. They are independent agents moving, doing stuff, so as you go, the words are changing and altering reality. Is that true? Bible seems to just kind of state it. But what's interesting is he said, if it doesn't work out, what are you supposed to do with your words? What did the verse just say? If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, what? Let your peace return to you. That's suck it back up. Boom. Words go back. Nothing happens. Shut it down. Wow. But then it gets even more intense. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, meaning you walk into a town and they just flat out shut you out. Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. And I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Whoa, that's hardcore. Everybody remember the cute little town, Sodom and Gomorrah? Sometimes we refer to them as S&G. No, we don't. We don't actually. Okay. Anyway. It just freaks me out about the carpet place. Anyway, so here's the thing. <laughs> Weird mindset. Okay, here's, here's how it works. The Jews believe that the dust, and this is kind of an Eastern concept as well, the dust represented the nation. Therefore, if you're walking in Gentile dirt, you kind of go, ooh, 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 Gentile dirt, right? Till you get back into Israel. Then what you're supposed to do is don't bring Gentile dirt into Israel. You're supposed to shake the dust off your sandals. It's like washing your hands. Then step over so you don't bring any of that garbage over. The idea is I'm disconnecting with you. He said, shake off the dust of your sandals and say, I'm done with you. And he said, in that day, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. In that city, what's that known for? Oh, you remember that? Oh, some cute, good-looking buff angels come walking into town. What happens? All the men of the town. Now, all the men can't get together for anything. All the men of the town surround the house, beat on the door, and say, bring out the good-looking guys so we can rape them now. You remember that town? It'll be a lot better for them than it will be for you. You don't shut my people down. Whoa. That's pretty intense. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. We get the wrong picture here. We hear innocent, we think, 
naive or stupid like a little bird that's flying and hits a window. It doesn't say be as stupid as birds. That's not what it said. It said be innocent. That word in Greek means unmixed, pure. In other words, when someone begins to examine your ministry and figure out your motives for why you're ministering to them, they will find nothing but Jesus, right? Unmixed, pure. But when you go out, you are shrewd as snakes. Now, that was the belief in the animal kingdom. If you read even the Genesis account, they had the belief that the snake was the most craftiest of all animals. The idea was you go out, you have a plan, you do it well, we bring excellence, we drive forward intentionally, and we get our job done. Be quick-witted about it. Know what in the world you're doing. This is not a haphazard, I don't know, I guess I'll share the faith today. No, we're on. Hmm. It says this. Be on your guard against men, for they will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Obviously, this is a this is a compilation because now he's even giving them instructions on how to go before Gentile kings. Hmm. Real quick question for you. Why did the ancient world hate the Christians? I mean, I can understand a little reason why they, they don't like us today. It's similar. But why did they hate the Christians? Why wouldn't you want a bunch of Christians in your nation? They make great neighbors. They're supposed to be all about love. They're not political activists. They're really, really good people. Why wouldn't you want a whole bunch of them in your area? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, there were some nasty, bogus rumors that went around and still go around in parts of the world today. For example, Christians are all cannibals. Christians are all sex fiends. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, we do the whole communion gig, right? We're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. What does that sound like? Cannibalism. Then every week when they would come to church, they would have the agape feast, which means what? The love feast. And they believed that it was just a place for sex. There was all these miscommunications and people began to buy it. But that was not the major reason. The major reason was things like, and I was reading in some commentaries, and they began to guess on some of the major issues, and they said, one of the main issues is things like, we say that Christ is king. Well, what does that mean for Caesar? Ah, now we're going to have some problems, right? Because they believe that Caesar's a god. They believe that he should be the supreme, and we say, no, he's not. Well, then all of a sudden in the church, right off the bat, remember the church started with a large population of slaves, right? All of a sudden, right at the beginning, slaves started running churches. Then they what? Go home and they're just slaves? It starts messing with people's heads. When you start treating everyone as equals, it starts rattling the fabric of society. They're not interested in that. So they begin to hate the Christian movement. All right. Fair enough. It says this. But when they arrest you... Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that moment, you will be given what to say, for it will not even be you speaking. But the spirit of your father, or as Mark and Luke say, the Holy Spirit, speaking through you. When you get arrested, not if. When you get arrested, don't worry about it. I'm going to start talking. Okay, real quick side note. Have any of you guys ever left a conversation about God feeling like a total moron? All right. Happens to me all the time. Okay. What do I do for a living? 
Pastor, what do I study every day? Bible. I know this stuff backwards and forwards. The minute someone knocks on my door. Hi, we're here from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I go, uh. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Jesus? Who's that? Right? It's like all of a sudden I'm on a plane and someone will literally look at me and go, how could I be saved, man? And I'll just go, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, have, I have no idea, but this plane flight is long. Um, okay. Every time it's like all of a sudden I just become moronic out of nowhere. I can't even remember what in the world I'm talking about. Maybe that's happened to you. It happens to me all the time. Why? Sometimes you go, oh, it's total spiritual warfare. You know what? Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit smacking you on the head and saying, shut up. I want to work. Because here's the thing. We ruin it. We go off and we have all these little things we want to say, right? We got all these little scripts in our heads and we're trying to share them all about the perfect life. And, and let me tell you how great Jesus is. And all of a sudden we start taking on some Pollyanna look and we start saying things like, oh, you got to get saved because it'll be the most amazing thing in your life. And you know what I do every day? I whistle while I work and I'm so excited and I vacuum with a smile on my face and Jesus is so happy. The whole time, the world's like, okay, that was a vomit look. Okay, here we go. Nobody can hear that on tape. Anyway, so here's the thing. Now, all of a sudden, the world's trying to engage with Jesus, and you keep giving them bogus, pat answers about a perfect life that they can't relate to. And sometimes the Holy Spirit wants you to say, I don't know. How about for the common man? Not your script. How about you fumbling through and being real? Hmm? Maybe that's a little more effective. God's in charge. He said this. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, that's a tough one. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth that you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Mark clarifies and talks about coming in power. A student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies, how much more the members of his household? In other words, Jesus said, if they didn't like me, what do they think of you? Don't be surprised. But do not be afraid of them, he said. And he actually encourages them in this passage three times not to be afraid. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Is that to try to freak him out and scare him? Is that to try to tell him that God's this wrathful, mean guy? No, it's about priorities. He said, why are we still so worried about what men and women think of us? Oh, they're going to think I'm nerdy. Oh, they're going to think I'm awkward. Oh, they're going to think I'm... Hold on, what's your priority again? Wait a second, who are we serving? Are we serving man or are we serving God? No, no, no. Re-rack there. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He goes on with encouragement. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You don't even number your own kid's hair. And you claim you love them. 
How much more does God love you? He's that involved. He's that interested. He loves everything you do. It says this. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. You ever done that? Oh, that's right. When you keep silent, when everyone else is talking about the fact of whether there's a God or not, and you just keep your mouth closed and don't do anything, and you let them go on on their pathway to hell, that's that's not denying God, right? Lance, what are you trying to condemn me? Oh, no, you're doing a good job on your own. No, what I wanted to share with you is that's exactly what Peter did. But we serve a God of what? Grace and reconciliation and restoration and mercy. Because even though Peter fell apart in front of everybody under pressure, he ended up becoming a pillar of the church. Right? Because God has only worked with fallible human beings, never anything else. It says this. Do not suppose, Jesus said, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Is that true? Do people really turn in their own family members? Better believe it. Every day in nations all over the world. Happens all the time. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. How's that for seeker sensitive? First mention of the cross by Matthew. Hmm. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Why do we always seem to believe that God only looks at us when we blow it or when we sin? What did he just say? I see it all. I see it every time you strain. I see it every time you want to cave and you don't. I want to see it every time you step out of your comfort zone. I see that. I mark it down. I know it. I've noted it. And I'm not going to forget it. You will receive your reward. You need to know that we are in this together. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be a crazy walk. But I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be right there at all moments. Why do you think I left the earth? Christ said, because he told him very clearly, it's better I go, right? Why? Because I'm going inside. Holy Spirit, boom, now he's inside. Every one of us, never leaving us, never abandoning us, always in the mix, always right there, always doing the real ministry, always doing the real talking. He said, no, I'm not going to walk away from you. This is more important to me than you can ever imagine. And every little thing you do, I'm watching all the good stuff. Hmm. Are we these kinds of people? Right? Some days, yeah. Right? Some days, no. Now, I fill my life with an awful lot of garbage. I had a hard time even singing the closing song 
these last three services. Because I know I'm playing it, right? Our prayer is that God would make us more than we are right now. That we would love Him far beyond anything. And that any sacrifice that we are ever asked to make wouldn't even show up on our radar. Because it's not a big deal. Amen? Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a challenge and a reminder today of your presence in the midst of the battle. Fill us up, empower us, strengthen us. Lord, every time you challenge us, you have already given us the ability to endure, the courage to handle, and all the tools we need. Father, may you be praised and glorified in our lives, in our thoughts, in our deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.